My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horror. I'm so thankful to be with you here in person in the room. If you're here in the room, let me hear you. Okay, good. <clears throat> For those who are tuning in online, we're so thankful that you're tuning in with us as well. We are one church still in multiple locations, but it's an honor to be able to be all together for worship this morning. I'm not sure if you've noticed this before, but within our culture, people love to debate. Am I right? People love to have an opinion about something and to debate that opinion and, and hopefully then to sway others towards their opinion. And some of the opinions we've seen recently, you know, they've come up all over the place, maybe on social media, even like the best chicken sandwich. Popeyes? Anyone? Chick-fil-A? Okay, you can have opinion, okay? I'm just asking. Popeyes? Chick-fil-A? Okay. Or how about this? The best basketball player of all time. Michael Jordan, LeBron James, <laughs> what a debate. Uh, there's all kinds of things, I mean like Carolina football versus Clemson football. Okay, so not everything's a debate. So um, this morning I'm anxious to be a part of this series for uh, the next four weeks as we are wrestling with some of the biggest questions that have been a part of the church for a very, very long time. And here's the thing, they're debatable. There's multiple sides to them. People have different opinions about them. And if they didn't, they would not have been questions that have been debated and wrestled with for literally centuries within the church. And so for the next four weeks, we wanna wrestle with some of the questions that I believe may be the kinds of questions that become barriers to people to ever really putting their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. Now, these things, um, as we said earlier, are up for debate. There are certainly a lot of things that swirl around them, but some of these questions, one we'll talk about today is, is God real? This is an important question to ask. Next week, is the Bible relevant? The third week, does life have a purpose? In our final week, why is there suffering? Now, I want to acknowledge this morning that there are many probably in the pews today and for the next four weeks who have different opinions on these things that we'll talk about, and that's Okay. We want us to be able to come and have an actual maybe dialogue after the service or maybe have some handles or some, some ways to have constructive conversations with folks in your neighborhood and your family and so forth. That's the point of this whole series and for us to have a chance to have open minds and open hearts to hear from God anew and afresh today. Now, we have 35 minutes to cover what we're going to cover this morning. So it's plenty of time to answer the question if God is real or not, right? I'll probably take 38, but we have 35 minutes. And so what we're doing for this four-week series is on Wednesday nights at 6.15. We'll, we'll invite you back to our midweek. Uh, it'll be um, online midweek. Chad Myers and I are going to sit down for a little bit of debate um, further on each one of the questions that we're talking about for these four weeks. So hopefully if, it, if this intrigues you, if it's interesting to you, or you know someone that would like to hear more about it, invite them at 6.15 on Wednesdays to have more conversation about these particular topics. So um, I know as God invites us in this morning to hear from today, I want us to, to be able to press in and be ready to hear from them this morning. So if you join me, let's just pray together really quickly before we jump in. Let's pray together. Father, we give you the next 35 minutes of our life, God. We pray that you would um, speak to us clearly, that we might encounter you, God. And even right now, as we're asking the question, if you're even real, it might seem kind of silly that we're even praying to you right now. But I pray, Father, that you would meet us in a fresh new way today, that you'd help us, God, to be able to be honest about the things that we wrestle with and struggle with and our uncertainties, God. We pray, we, we pray that you would take those things and that you would uh, give us a faith, God, that is real and vibrant and that makes an impact on the world in a very positive way. So we love you today, Jesus. We need you this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. 
Amen. My heart has always gone out to those who are uncertain. My heart has always been for the skeptic because, honestly, I'm a skeptic at heart. Uh, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a while. But my whole life, I've really wrestled with the things of God. I've not come to my faith easily. My wife and I, we live in the same house. My wife is very fine to say, listen, God loves you. And she's like, good. And I don't even want to know why. I just trust that. I'm like, he loves us, but why? Why would he love? Like, those are the kinds of questions that I ask. And I, I constantly kind of prod and, and look around. And so this particular series, to be honest with you, has been one that I've kind of nerded out on. I'm very excited to talk about all the topics during these four weeks because these are the things that I wrestle with. And my hope would be in the room, there might be others that wrestle with the same kind of stuff. And maybe we could hear one another today and say, listen, maybe I'm not the only one who wrestles with this. And maybe this morning you're like my wife and you're like, I don't even care why. I just have faith and I'm good. Great. Maybe, maybe this morning we can give you some handles to have conversation with others who are uncertain, who are wrestling, who do see this as a debate of sorts. So either you're one person or another this morning, either you are here this morning and you are certain of your faith, no question at all, or maybe this morning you are someone who is uncertain, or maybe you are someone who knows someone who is uncertain. This conversation, I hope, can help. So as a kid, I grew up on a farm in Indiana. My grandparents lived about 700 yards away through the woods. Uh, we lived on maybe a total of like 60 acres together. And I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. I loved being with them. I talked about it last uh, weekend at Easter, actually, my grandmother, who's a, a great gardener. And they had in the back of their house an, a little apple orchard, maybe 12, 14 apple trees, something like that. And um, my cousins and I, we love to spend time in the backyard in the apple orchard. We love to make cider and do everything else. But our favorite thing was to wait for the apples to get falling off the tree, getting nasty on the ground, then throw them at each other. And that was really fun. So you'd hit somebody just right with a smushy apple and it would explode everywhere. It was so cool. But being in the backyard, being in that orchard, even at a very young age, I remember thinking to myself, it's amazing that you could have an apple that would grow on a tree, that could fall from a tree, hit the ground, rot, seed go into the ground, and that seed then begin to grow with water and sunshine. And then eventually you would have another apple tree. That fascinated me. How is this possible? Like, how can this happen? And even as a young child, it began to, those questions began to prod me to ask the question, if this is so amazing and so wonderful, like, is there something else beyond the physical world that we exist within that is behind all of this? Because it is so amazing. And if that thing is beyond this physical world and the metaphysical kind of world, if that thing, does it have an interest in us? And are we able to know it? Those are the kind of questions that I asked even from a young child. Like, how is this possible being in a world that is so amazing like this? There's got to be something else. There's got to be something beyond. Because here's the thing. If God does not exist, this question is so important. If God does not exist, then we all could have a lot more time on our hands, right? We could have all slept in this morning and not had to come to do this. Because if God's not real, this just seems silly, that we would come and we would sing songs and we would sit in pews and we would do this aside from maybe some social interaction, this wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, if God is not real, we would have a whole lot more time on our hands. But here's the thing. If God is real, then that means that all of our life, everything that we do, everything that we say, Every way we treat people within our family, within our friends, every website we visit, everything that we say to one another, everything we do in the workplace, everything we do at our leisure time, all of it is then called into question if God is real. 
And so this question is not just some kind of fly-by-night question. This is a question that has major implications, like eternal implications. To be able to answer this, I believe, uh, can answer a lot of other questions that we have within our life as well. Is God real? You know, if there is no God, then I would conclude that there is no Bible, And if there is no Bible, I would conclude that there really is no Jesus that we can trust in. And if there is no Jesus, then I would conclude that we don't really have any confidence in eternity. And so this one question perpetuates into a lot of other questions. And perhaps one of the reasons that we struggle with a lot of these things, we've never fully answered this one. Is God real? Can I trust that? Now, I would argue this morning there are probably many reasons why we are uncertain about this or we know people who are uncertain about this, but there's probably three main ones. And the first one is this. Many of us might say there's just not enough evidence. Like we don't have footprints from God. We don't have video evidence. We don't have photographs. We don't have like a sit-down interview with him on 60 Minutes. We don't, we don't have a lot of the evidence that maybe we feel like we need to have to believe something. I mean, a lot of places within our life, we don't believe something unless we have the evidence to back it up. And you can test it with the scientific method. And therefore, then we would conclude, okay, I'll trust that. That seems like good evidence to believe. Maybe for some of us this morning, we just feel, don't feel like we have that evidence. That's fair. That's fair. But secondly, maybe one of the reasons that we have trouble and we're uncertain about this is because of past disappointments. Maybe something happened within our lives or the lives of someone that we love and care about. And because of that, because of that tragedy, because of that accident, because of that sickness, because of that death, because of that disappointment, we've concluded, how could this possibly happen if God does exist? Therefore, he can't possibly exist. I mean, maybe for some of us, we've had such disappointing things happen within our life that it has clouded our ability to be able to believe in a God who loves us and cares about us. Think about this for a minute. The past year, COVID-19, there are many people who have said, how is this even possible if we have a God who loves us and who loves the world? This, I believe, is one of the hardest barriers to get through in terms of faith in God. Maybe the third reason might be this. Maybe... Maybe it's not about evidence. Maybe it's not about past disappointments. But maybe for you, it's just simply that we want to avoid responsibility. And if we're really honest, some of us, if God is real, that means that maybe the way we live our life has to change. We have to be accountable. We have to be responsible. And for some of us, perhaps, we don't want that responsibility. We don't want to be accountable. We don't want to change anything about the way we live. And so it's much easier to say, God's not real. That's our philosophical stance. I don't want to change, but if God's real, I have to. Therefore, God can't be real. And maybe there's other reasons as well, but I believe these are the threes. I talk to folks, the ones that I hear most often. Listen, life's been hard, and because of that, I can't imagine God being real. Listen, I don't really want to change. Therefore, God can't be real. Or perhaps I just don't see the evidence. I don't see anything that would cause me to believe this. But out of all of these things, here's the bottom line. People are uncertain for a reason. I don't believe people just wake up one day like, listen, I don't want to believe in God. I believe people find themselves in this place for a reason. It's not something to shame someone over. It's not something to gloat over, to boast over. It's just an honest wrestle. And therefore, this discussion has to happen. But as I hear this discussion often, I hear it really in only two different kinds of ways. Sometimes I hear us pastor folk, the religious folk, say things like, listen, if you're going to believe in God, that what you have to do is you have to focus just on faith. Check your brain at the door. 
Don't think about stuff. Don't ask questions. Just, just have faith and trust it. That's what you got to do. But I hear other people on the opposite side of the coin as well, maybe from the scientific community or, or so forth, that might say things like this. All you have to function on is reason and logic. You got to give up your superstition. You got to give that up. But here's what I would argue this morning. I think they both can coexist. I think we actually can have faith and at the same time still have reason and logic and then hold hands as we might conclude that God is actually real. Okay, we're going to get nerdy for a second. You ready? Here we go. 17th century mathematician Blaise Pascal, he had a theory called Pascal's wager. He essentially said this, there is either a God or there is not a God. What a genius, right? (laughs) Thanks, Blaise. What other options are there? Either there is a God or there is not a God. And essentially in this wager, he came up with this wager because he had a lot of friends who loved to gamble and they were far from God. He said, listen, you got to understand it like you understand gambling. It's a 50-50 wager. You might be right. You might be wrong. But if we believe in God and we are right, what do we gain? Eternity. What do we lose? Being able to live our life perhaps the way that we want to. But if God is not real, there's risk and reward there as well. It's a 50-50 wager. And the reason it is because not one of us in the room can 100% prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond debate, that God actually exists. Even the most diehard Christian, the one who's been at this church for 50-something years or longer, we have to admit that we cannot 100% prove without a shadow of a doubt, beyond debate, that God is actually real. But at the same time, You cannot 100% prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond debate, that God is not real. Therefore, it's faith either way. You understand? To say God is real, that takes faith. To say God's not real, that takes faith as well. Pascal says it's a wager, but it's a risk that we have to make. It's a choice we have to make. We need to decide. Now, I want to be honest with you this morning. I believe God is real. And so I'm like, good, a pastor says God's real, it's good. And the reason I believe that is what I want to talk about this morning. For me, a lot of it comes from scripture, a lot of it comes from kind of philosophical angles. Some of it just comes from the gut. For me to say that I think God actually exists. But I believe there are three main arguments that I think we can kind of hang our hats on to say, here is the reason that I can step out in faith, that I can make this wager, I can take this risk, and say that God is real. If I were to take you back to my home farm where I grew up, uh, we would have to first walk out the doors of this church. We have to walk to a car, get in a car, we'll drive to Columbia. Tickets are probably too expensive. We'll go to Charlotte, we'll fly out of Charlotte. Go to Indianapolis, get out of Indianapolis, get in a car, drive to Lafayette, get out there, walk into the backyard. There's not one mode of transportation that could get us all the way there. There has to be multiple to get us there. And this morning, I think the same thing is true with this discussion, this debate. There's probably not one of these arguments that's going to get somebody fully there. Oh, I didn't understand that. Now that you said that, of course. But maybe these three arguments together, these three modes of transportation can move us close enough where we might step out in faith and say that God is real and place our faith and our hope and our trust in him or give us handles to have conversation. So here's the first argument. It's called the moral argument. The moral argument. Now I want to share where some of this research came from. Feel free to write this down if you want to read some more later on. C.S. Lewis does a great job in his book, Mere Christianity, talking about this particular argument, the moral argument. 
But it's kind of like this. My son, when he was, my oldest son, when he was very, very young, he walked into our living room one day and I was standing in the living room and he just walked across the carpet and out of nowhere, totally unsolicited, just started spitting on the carpet. I said, son, you have to stop spitting on the carpet. And he looked at me and he said, well, why? I was like, well, because I said so. This is not a discussion. And I would have concluded as an adult human being that that was kind of like a normal, moral thing. I don't walk into someone else's house and just spit on the carpet. But for my two-year-old, I had to have this conversation and explain to him, we don't spit on the carpet. And it took a while to convince him, and eventually he's like, okay, I won't spit on the carpet anymore. It seemed like a moral code that everybody should have within it. For some reason for him, I had to explain it to him. The first argument for the existence of God that I believe really helps me in this understanding is that if God does not exist, then there is no moral standard. If God is not real, then there's no moral standard that we can stand on. Here's what I mean. No one can say something is right, and no one can say something is wrong. But we observe all around the world that in every single culture there seems to be a moral code of some kind. You cannot find a culture in the world that does not condemn stealing. You cannot find a culture in the world where cowardice is praised. You can't find a culture in the world where lying is praised or honesty is belittled. Can we go past those moral things? Yes, but it's a conscious effort. Somewhere deep within us, within our fiber, within our created being, within us somewhere is a moral code that has been placed there that we in the church would conclude has to have come from somewhere outside of us, particularly because it shows up in all cultures. It doesn't seem to be something taught. It seems to be something that is innate to us. Dostoevsky said it this way. He said very simply, without God, everything is permissible. Without God, everything is permissible. I mean, perhaps that might be a reason that some within our culture are so desperately trying to get God out of culture. Therefore, we can do anything that we like. Because with him there, there seems to be a standard that's in place. But with him gone, there is no standard. Everything is permissible. You see, if God is a fairy tale, then it is impossible. Please hear me. If God is not real, it is impossible to condemn hatred, racism, cheating, bullying, murder, greed. Because who says that it's wrong? At the very best, all we can say is that it's opinion. I don't think these things are good. Therefore, I should think that you would not like them as well. That's the best we can do. But if God is real, that is a moral standard that's placed within our hearts somewhere deep within us. Now, on the other side of the coin, the same thing is true as well. We cannot applaud things like generosity, love, equality, brotherhood, honesty, faithfulness, because who's to say what is good? If God is not real, there is no moral standard, and therefore everything goes, anything is permissible, and no one can tell anyone else what we can and cannot do, and what is wrong and what is right. If anyone has a child in the room this morning, you know that this is true. When your child is little, and they have something that you take away from them, say like something small they could choke on, and you take that away, what does that child do? Instantly says, that's not fair, right? Yeah, it is. I'm dad. I'm taking it. But no one has to teach that child that. Somewhere deep within them, they know already, listen, this is my thing. I feel like it's my thing. You've taken it from me. That's not fair. There seems to be a moral code that is in our very fabric. It's universal in nature. It's to everyone. It's not surprising the Bible speaks to this. 
Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. A very interesting passage. Here's what he says. He says, Indeed, when Gentiles, non-Jewish folk, who do not have the law, this law of God that had been given to the Jews, when they do by nature things that are required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their what? Hearts. Their conscience also bear witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing and at other times even defending them. Paul says, listen, we as Jewish folk, we have a law that's been given to us by God to know what is right and wrong. But we've noticed something. These Gentiles, sometimes they do the right thing too. And they don't even have the law. Where does that come from? Paul says, here's where it comes from. It's been written on the hearts of every single created being. God has done it. It must have come from somewhere outside of ourselves. Paul would conclude, and I would agree with him this morning, this must mean that it must have come from someplace outside of the physical realm. It's come from God. You see, our culture would say things like this. You have your way. I have mine. But as for the right way, it does not exist. You have your way, your opinion. I have mine and my opinion. But as for the right way, it doesn't exist until I cut them off on the highway. Right? And now I've done a grave injustice. But who's to say? Who's to say that's right or that's wrong? You just said everything is permissible until I've done something that has encroached upon your freedom. You see, our hearts, we know what is right and what is wrong, even if our minds try and sway us. The moral argument would say it this way. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book as well. If I were to have a huge marker in front of you right now and write a huge line just like this all over the stage in front of you and ask you, everyone in the room, is this line crooked or is it crooked? Is it crooked? Is it swirly? Or is it straight? What would you say? Crooked. How do you know? Because you said so. All right. Because you know what a straight line looks like, right? We would say, well, that's a swirly line because I know what a straight line looks like. This is what C.S. Lewis argues is the moral argument. We know what is right and wrong because it's been placed within us. And we know when something is wrong because God has put a moral compass within us to help give us guidance and direction. And it would point to the fact that there is an existence of a theistic God that we can trust. Secondly, a second argument that has really helped me in my understanding of God is this, the teleological argument. This comes from the Greek word telos, which means design. And essentially it goes like this. The universe is so precise, so complex, so wonderful, that it implies there must exist a designer somewhere who has created it all. When my first son was born, I remember being in the hospital and having no clue what to do with a kid and having this baby born placed into my hands. I remember looking at him just being like this, just weeping. This is crazy that a person could have a human being, a living being, grow within their womb for nine months and then birth that baby and then have all the things needed to be able to keep that baby alive and sustain that baby until it becomes an adult of its own and perhaps has more babies as well. That is crazy. It seems so precise, so complex, so wonderful that it would definitely be a part of this argument. There must be someone who has created this and made this to function in the way that it does. 
If we were to be in the woods, walking together through the woods, and we were to come across a bird's nest, we might conclude, where did this nest come from? It's not a trick question. This is just like a, a bird, right? Good, thank you. I just want to make sure we're all tracking. If we find a bird's nest, we're going to be like, a, a bird must have made this. If we're in the woods and we find a computer, we would conclude, where did this computer come from? Bill Gates. If we're in the woods and we find a, a beautiful painting, we would conclude that a painter must have made this painting. It doesn't happen by accident. Essentially, this argument says the world is so precise, so complex, that there must be someone outside of this who has made everything that we know and experience. There's a great resource that's on YouTube right now by a guy named Rob Bell. He's written a book about it as well. I saw it live in person, but it's a wonderful lecture. <laughs> that's a weird thing to say. A two-hour lecture where he goes through all of these different things showing how we exist as spiritual beings. It's called Everything is Spiritual. And in this lecture, he points out a couple of things that I found astounding. The first thing he says is this, that there's this planet, planet that is rushing through the galaxy right now at 67,000 miles per hour. That same planet is also tw twirling and spinning at 1,000 miles per hour. And that planet is called Earth which is why you should grab your pews right now. 67,000 miles per hour through the galaxy, 1,000 miles an hour spinning at that particular rate. This is the earth. And this earth, it has a sun, or the sun has this earth, and the sun produces 99% of all energy that we have here on this earth. Every second, 4 million tons of energy is coming straight directly towards us. In an 11-year sun cycle, that output varies less than one-tenth of one percent. It's, it's incredibly precise to be able to have life on earth. Without this, we could not exist. This is one of what scientists call universal constants. In fact, scientists believe now there are at least 26, if not more, constants that exist within the universe to be able to create life like we have here on earth. 26, almost as if they are dials that have been set just right to be able to have life and sustain life and to create life, these universal constants. One of them, as we just talked about, is this earth. It's the sun producing energy. But not only that, but earth is 93 million miles away from the sun. At 92 million miles away from the sun, no life on earth. At 94 million miles away from the sun, no life on earth. Our earth is also tilted at 23.5% of degrees. And because of this tilt, it keeps the earth from becoming tidally locked, meaning that our earth would never spin. And so one side would be completely freezing and the other side would be blazing hot at, at all times. And it would create no life on earth. At 22, or 22 degrees, no life on earth. 24 degrees, no life on earth. 23.5 degrees. Now, this tilt comes from 40% the sun's gravitational pull and 60% the moon's gravitational pull that creates this tilt within the earth. 21% of earth's atmosphere is made up of oxygen. At 20%, no life on earth. 22%, no life on earth. 3.4% of our bloodstream and the oceans are made up of salt. 3.5%, no life on earth. 30.3%, no life on earth. These are just a few of these dials that are put together just perfectly to have life. And taken off just a minuscule amount could throw everything off balance. Even if one dial is changed, it's the haunting reality that would cause every other dial to be rendered useless. They have to be in perfect concert with one another. Some people call this the science of fine-tuning. 
that the earth is just perfect to sustain life. We conclude in the church that this must be from someone outside of the physical realm. And we would call this thing God. And God has created everything that we know and see. Paul speaks to this as well in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, when he says this. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So people are without excuse. Paul says, if you've ever been outside and you've seen the beauty of a tree, you went to the ocean this past week for spring break and what the ocean looks like, maybe your neighbor, your child, when you see someone, how precise and perfect and wonderful. Paul says, you have everything that you need to be able to conclude that God must be real from his very creation. The Bible tells us God has revealed himself to us in multiple different ways. One of the ways is called general revelation. It's available to everyone. It's sky, ground, water, mountains, trees, people. All the created world is general revelation about who God is. But there's also something called special revelation. One of those things is the Bible has been given to us to show us deeper who this God is. And then the person of Jesus Christ, who the Bible says had all the fullness of God dwell within him to show us what God is like. So the question is, if God is real, does he care about us? Yes. Does he desire to know us? Yes. Is he able to be known? Yes. And Paul says, we've been given everything we need so that no one has an excuse. Third, the third argument I would, I would say is the, is the best argument of all. Most convincing argument for me. It's called the evidential argument. Uh, this one is compelling because this one has everything to do with the kind of work that God is doing within people and then through people as well. This argument has a lot to do with like the wind. You can't see the wind, but during pollen season in South Carolina, you can see the effects of the wind, right? When you walk outside and you see a yellow tornado just flying through your neighborhood, you can't see the actual wind, but you're seeing the effects of what the wind is doing all around you. This is evidential. It's evidence. And the evidential argument would essentially say the same thing, that God is constantly at work within our lives and the lives of people around us. So potentially you, sitting in the pew, right down from someone else, you might be the best argument for the fact that God actually exists. It's a lot of responsibility. That we, as followers of Jesus, we who are Christians, we might be the best argument, the best evidence to trust in God. The Bible talks about this in 1 John chapter 4. 11 through 13, one of my favorite verses. Here's what the writer says. He says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. You see the admission here? It's a debate. No one's ever seen God, he says. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he lives in us. He has given us his spirit. Do you see? Our lives may be the greatest example for the fact that God is real to the people around us who are asking this question, who are uncertain about whether God exists. Our backpack ministry here at the church that feeds children on the weekend who don't have food otherwise it might be the best evidence to those children that God is real and taking care of them. 
our ramp ministry, building ramps for folks who need them. Might be the best evidence for the fact God is real. Next step, serving in the summer, our generosity as individuals and as a church. Christian teachers, Christian nurses, Christian doctors, Christians in the workplace. We might be the best evidence for the fact that God is real to those around us. But this is a double-edged sword. Just as we might be the best argument for, we can also, if we're not careful, be the best argument against the fact that God exists. Brennan Manning, speaker, priest, and writer, he said it this way. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and who walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. This is what the unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That one stings a bit, doesn't it? It's a sobering thought that the way that I live my life potentially has, over the past 37 years of my life, almost 38, caused people to believe that God is real. But I know for a fact that there are also times in my life where I've lived in such a way and acted in such a way and spoken in such a way where it would have caused someone to walk away sad and questioning whether the God that I profess to believe in is actually real. So what is your life communicating What is your life saying about this God? Are you a good argument for his existence? Are you a piece of the evidential argument? I've seen students' lives in this church after 16 years be changed, and every time it happens, I'm more convinced. I've seen marriages come back from the brink, and God save marriages in this church. And when it happens, it causes me to trust him even more. I've seen prayers answered, personal and corporate within this church that I cannot explain. And when it happens, it causes me once again to believe that God is in fact real. So back to the apple. If I were to take a bite of this apple, I were to ask you, is this apple sour or sweet? Who's the only person who could answer that question? Me, right? I'm the only one who's eating the apple right now. I'm the only one who could answer that question. And there's an interesting thing about this whole debate. I really don't think that anyone will come to faith in God because of some kind of you know, theoretical wrestling, philosophical gymnastics, some kind of theological pushback. I think people come to faith in God because they experience God. They experience him personally. Here's what it says in Psalm 34, 8. The writer says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I know that in the room this morning, there might be some who've, who have written God off a long time ago. And I'll be honest with you, maybe for good reason. Painful reasons. Difficult reasons. My encouragement this morning is once again, give God a chance. Allow him, allow him to prove himself to you. Taste and see that he is in fact good, that he in fact loves us. He's in fact still at work in our lives and the lives of those around us. Just because something is debatable does not mean that it's not true. Just because something can be debated doesn't mean that the stance, the faith, the trust, the hope that we have is false. 
these reasons and more are really the ones that have caused me to continue to trust Jesus with my whole life. It's one of the reasons that I want to be up here on a stage behind a, a pulpit to say, you are loved by God. He is very much real. And he's very much wanting to know you and for you to know him. So this morning, would you join me as we pray together? Let's pray. God, just to be really honest, after a year that we've just had, after loss that many of us have experienced, after disappointment that many of us have gone through, it's hard to put ourselves out there once again and to place our faith in you. But I pray, God, that as we do so, that we find you in a really unique kind of way. I pray that you would meet us right where we are, that you'd express to us the love that you have for us by the people around us, by the things that we see you do, by the evidence everywhere. God, we thank you for placing within us this moral code, this understanding of what is right and wrong that we might notice that it points towards you. Thank you, God, for creating such a wonderfully complex and perfect and precise world that we might see it pointing to you. And thank you, God, for leaving evidence for us by the people who love you and trust you that it might point to you. And so, God, we know that there are many who continue to debate this question, whether you exist or not. But I pray that today, God, you'd help us to step out in faith and trust with our whole hearts that we can rely upon you and make us good evidence to those around us. We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.